This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. There are two words when said in conjunction with this program, The Other Side of Midnight, cause the enthusiasm level of an average listener to go from 9.5 to 12 on a scale of 1 to 10. There are two words that if you are thinking of going to sleep prior to the start of this program will keep you awake at least for another hour. There are two words that inspire wonder and amazement. There are two words that immediately bring to mind the man with the best voice in all of radio and a man with more knowledge about space and astronomy than just about anyone I've spoken to on the radio. Those two words are Dr. Sky. Dr. Sky, whose name is actually Steve Cates, is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with a great deal of expertise in the world of space and astronomy. And he's kind enough to be a regular contributor to this program, as well as to a number of other great radio programs on the station and around the country. Steve, it is great to talk with you again. How are you? Well, Frank, good to be with you. Uh, good morning, and it's great to be back on the other side of midnight for our next Dr. Sky Adventure. Thank you for having me. So uh, let's begin with the moon. Uh, there's a, so much talk of the moon. Uh, apparently there's a super moon coming. There's an anniversary of the moon coming. But um, a lot of folks have been focused on why we really haven't been back to the moon since the 1970s. The Artemis Moon Rocket Project and the Artemis Moon Rocket Program is the first step in, in turning that around. What's happening now with the Artemis, Artemis Project? Well, Frank, many people may not know this because all the thunder and lightning, I guess, goes over to Elon Musk with the you know, SpaceX projects and all of his heavy lift rockets, the super heavies and things. But NASA has been quietly working on a very interesting rocket. It's known as the Artemis Block 1 rocket or the Space Launch Systems rocket. What is this? It's a super heavy lift rocket, actually 365 feet tall, kind of reminiscent in many ways in size to the powerful Saturn V moon rocket. And later, hopefully, we'll talk about that 53rd anniversary of America landing on the moon with Apollo 11. Hard to believe, some uh, 53 years ago, back in 1969. But the rocket itself should at least be able to exhibit about 6.6 million pounds of thrust, maybe more. But it's powered by liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen. And it's a combination of not only liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen in the booster rockets, but it also has some solid rocket motors. Remember, the space shuttle always had the two SRBs, one on each side. But the main power plant are four of these RS-25 engines that do give this particular rocket some extra oomph to get up into space. What's it all about? On top of it is a much larger, more modernized uh, secondary version of what we call the Apollo capsule. And if all goes well, the rocket was actually sitting on the launch pad doing some fuel-up tests, and they did successfully do that with a few minor things that they got to do. Then they moved it back with that giant robot, you know, the big crawler, which moves it about four miles, back into probably one of the largest buildings in the world. I don't know if you've ever seen the vehicle assembly building, where this, this building itself was built to withstand hurricane force during the Apollo program. Hmm. But simply what they're going to do, Frank, is roll it out again, we hope, they hope, maybe sometime in August, to do the first of a series of long lunar missions unmanned this time, which is the beginning 
You, you know, Steve, your phone's coming in a little shaky. I'm going to put you on hold uh, in the hopes that we can maybe reconnect with you and uh, and uh, get a, a better connection. Uh, but if people are just tuning in, we are joined for the hour by uh, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. And uh, he. we are going to take your calls about anything related to space and to astronomy. If you have questions, uh, you can give us a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Uh, as we referenced, we are coming up in just a couple of weeks on the 53rd anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. Uh, so uh, there's certainly a lot of aspects of that that people think they know that they may not know. We'll get into that as well as uh, a few other areas as well. I think we have uh, I think we have Steve uh, Steve back. Steve, sorry about that. As you were saying. I apologize, Frank. Hopefully I'm sounding a little bit better. Much better. Thank you. But the goal here is actually, as this particular moon rocket is launched, unmanned as it is, this is hopefully what NASA wants to do, a man landing on the lunar surface in the South Pole by 2025. So we're hoping that that happens. But this particular rocket is very interesting. It's a very powerful rocket, and we'll be updating you as time goes on, and hopefully we'll get a real launch out of this, and they'll replicate what Apollo 8 did back in 1968, when three astronauts, of course, made that journey around the moon. Quite a fascinating story. Are you optimistic as someone that roots for space exploration to continue pushing boundaries? Are you optimistic that this will happen? I am, Frank. I think it's great. Obviously, the problem with the Apollo program is once we did this once or twice, the Americans and people around the world seemingly lost a lot of interest in this. Not everybody. People who like this particular subject will always be on the positive side. But what's interesting about this, as we continue, I'm hoping, yes, to answer your question, that we do continue on here to send humans, and this time females, to the surface of the moon. This is a goal, I think, for many reasons, that we have some great technologies that we can explore on the moon, including some potential fuels that we're in such desperation right now. If we could harvest, as many astronauts have said in the past, the helium-3 isotope on the surface of the moon and harvest it, it might be a gateway for us to learn how to use alternate energy sources and ones that have tremendous potential for power. Yeah, I know uh, Ralph Cramden, he certainly was always very interested in sending <laughs> his wife to the moon. So uh, I think more more women on the moon would certainly be a good thing. 800-848-9222. We'll answer as many of your questions as we can throughout the hour. Uh, Bill is in Huntington. Bill, you're on with Dr. Sky. Okay. Now, the periodic meteor showers, they have a radiant. Uh, yes. Perseids come from a place in uh, constellation Perseus. Now, if the radiant is like in the southern hemisphere, if it's in Crux, the Southern Cross, or Musk of mm-hmm. the Fly, can you right. see meteors in America? Probably not. And good morning, Bill. Thank you for the great questions. You obviously are tuned in and dialed in to this subject very well, as we've talked in the past. Radiance, like these meteor showers, as you mentioned, Perseids from the Perseus constellation, all these things like Orion, it's from Orion. But no, if your latitude, let's say you're listening to us anywhere in North America, wherever this radio show is heard across America, you obviously would not be able to see much of anything when these radiants are well below the horizon. Now, the southern hemisphere would suffer naturally, logically, that if the radiant of the Perseids, which is a high summer meteor shower in the northern hemisphere, if I was in Australia, I may have a difficulty seeing it. But way south, very close to the southern pole, if I was within, say, 70 or 80 degrees of, let's say, in Antarctica, 
it would be virtually difficult, if not impossible, to see northern radiance, just like it would be for these southern ones. 800-848-9222 on the subject of the moon. John in Freehold has a question. It's a question I think we've addressed before, but it's one that I get asked a great deal, so it probably makes sense to review again. And what's your question, John? Yeah, it's a... How you guys doing? It's a pleasure as always talking, Frank. Thanks. Nice good morning. Nice to be with you, John. Uh, good morning. So um, I, I just don't understand. If we were able to go to the moon in 1969 and in the 70s, the technology now is a million times better. Uh, I, I just don't get why we don't go there. It makes you feel like something's wrong with that or they don't want to go there. I don't think it matters that people uh, aren't interested in it. Well, John, no, you bring up a good point. It's pretty much a financial thing. And we brought back some 840 pounds of moon rocks in all the Apollo programs. But the interesting fact is, I don't think there's a conspiracy, nor did you say that, about not wanting to go back to the moon. I think both John and I think Frank would probably agree with this, that I think one of the first things I would like to do is see even a robotic spacecraft land at the Apollo 11 designated site, where, of course, there's artifacts that are still there. And once and for all, Imagine that, guys, seeing in 4K or 8K video. Wouldn't that be amazing to at least return to those sites and put to rest? But I'm sure what? There'd be people out there that still would say the moon landing was faked. But I'm a big proponent of this. I think it's a great thing for technology. And wow, John, imagine the things that we're going to get from technology this time. The videos, the views, and the technology is just going to give us some really good answers as to how this whole universe was created. The moon holds a lot of those secrets. But in a nutshell, though, Steve, the the answer is best you understand it as to why. And we've had a lot of presidents that always talk about going back to the moon. I, I know Bush did in one state of the union. Yes. I think Obama did. And I, I thought and uh, Trump certainly was the administration that got the ball rolling on Artemis. Your understanding of why we haven't been back to the moon is because of diminished interest and diminished funding because well, yes, of diminished and- interest. Absolutely, Frank. And one of the main reasons was a lot of that money. Remember, there were going to be Apollo 18s and 19s and maybe even a 20. But the time at at this particular time, the the budget shifted. And that's something that Congress decided, of course, and handed it down to NASA. Most of that money during that period of time went over to what? The space shuttle program, Mm. a very important program for us. But I think what happened then, a lot of that also went into the International Space Station and our original space stations in the sky that we obviously put up there. So a lot of that was due to funding. But I'm hoping, and I'm being pretty much optimistic, but also a realist in the economic world, that I, don't, I do not just think that NASA is going to do this. I think you're going to have to see privatizing of space. And look at the strides that uh, you know we see from Elon Musk and SpaceX. So I think the future looks bright to return to the moon, if not just to do it, but for many other reasons that are technology to help improve life here on the Earth, believe it or not. Well, the moon is, uh, of course, the Earth's natural satellite. Speaking of satellites, a lot of attention was uh, was paid when we saw that um, the capstone satellite broke off from Earth's orbit. Apparently now NASA has reestablished contact with this uh, with this satellite what exactly happened here? What caused what is the capstone satellite? What caused it to break away from Earth's orbit and what's happening now? Well, here's the interesting short story. Rocket Labs, a company, launched a rocket called Electron. And inside that rocket is a little payload with another little rocket called uh, Photon. 
And that particular rocket pushed out this little tiny uh, space probe, if you want to call it, like a little micro satellite. It weighs 55 pounds. But the purpose of Capstone is very interesting. It is going to explore, this sounds very technical, and I'll explain it, a rectilinear lunar halo orbit. What is that in simple language? It's a very specialized orbit that goes polar to polar around the moon. What's all this for? The object, the little capstone, will probably get there into that orbit sometime in November. It's taking its time. On July 4th, the, you know, the ground commanders and the people running this show with NASA and up in Colorado, they temporarily lost control or contact, I should say, not necessarily control. I don't know what they did, but they've reestablished, as you said, com you know, communications and contact with Capstone. But what's so important about this particular object, it's going to pave the way for the orbit. They want to make sure that this orbit works, and it's for many reasons for putting up what we call the Lunar Gateway Space Station. Now, if most folks think we just have a space station around the Earth, they're right. We're going to have a space station around the orbit of the moon, and it needs to work in that rectilinear halo orbit. It's a very interesting orbit because the spacecraft or this, this particular uh, space station will come down to a low point in its orbit about 935 miles above the Earth and swing out in the seven-day orbit to about 43,000 miles. And the whole purpose of that is they will have on board, this is the dream boat, they will have robots, landing craft, and it'll be the habitation module for maybe four or five astronauts as they then plan their descent to the surface of the moon. A very smart thing to do, and that's a very exploratory thing because if we're ever going to go to Mars, we do not just want to send the rocket there, land, and hopefully we can get back. We want to have a predestined space station, let's say around Mars, as the lifeboat, if you're that far away, and I think this is a great concept. Great things are about to happen, hmm. Frank. No, it's certainly, I'm optimistic. We're going to continue with your calls in a moment. Uh, Steve Cates is here, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. You have questions, you can call us at 800-848-9222. If you want to read more of uh, Dr. Sky's observations on what's happening in the night sky, you could check out the Dr. Sky blog at ktar.com. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We're talking with one of our favorite guests, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and television broadcaster and edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. Uh, Steve, we are coming up in just a couple of weeks on the 53rd anniversary of Apollo 11. Not long ago, in the grand scheme of things, in, in American textbooks in school were saying that it was impossible 
to travel to the moon. It was considered the stuff of science fiction. Uh, These days, it's uh, considered a seminal, not only achievement for humankind, but of the United States and America. And whenever anything is uh, sought to get done, that's a big deal that uh, has to do with a government partnership with the private sector. It's always referred to as a moonshot because of the success that uh, the private sector and the public sector had in making that happen in 1969. Uh, as we go into July uh, 20th, I think it was, as we go into July 20th, what should folks keep in mind about what a remarkable human achievement that was? Well, if we're all old enough, we know where we were when we watched it. I was 13 years of age back in the New York area. And I remember watching it on my parents' little black and white television that had a little problem with the horizontal control. And in those days, I had to ask permission to stay up because the moon, the moon walk took place Eastern time well after 10 p.m. at night. What I think people need to remember, there's some little-known facts about this particular mission with these three heroes the United States sent to the moon, long stories about how they got to be selected, longer stories about who was to be first to walk out of the lunar module. But here's some interesting trivia, and I think it is also symbolic to remember the mission. Many people don't realize that seven minutes after Neil Armstrong stepped onto the lunar surface back in July 1969, he collected a small sample of lunar material and safely tucked it into his spacesuit. Why? Just in case they had to abort if something were to go wrong, because that was virgin territory then. They didn't even realize that they would, might even sink. They didn't know. They might even sink into the ground like quicksand. So they, he did that just so that we would have something if they had to abort right away. But successfully, they were on the moon for well over 21 and a half hours, which is one of the shortest durations of any of the lunar walk, you know, the lunar missions. Well, I'm sorry, walks. give me the length of time again. 21 and a half hours. Uh So they spent a total of 21 and a half hours, which is one of the shortest times that they've ever had of any of those Apollo missions. But they brought back, and look at this, 47 pounds of moon rocks. And they had some problems because they had a little conveyor system that they really hadn't tested out on the moon until they're there, which you would kind of like a clothesline, hook the bags up and try to move them up into the lunar module. That didn't work too good, so they had to do it by hand. Imagine going up and down that ladder but you're in one-sixth gravity. But when they left, this is also interesting from the trivia file, they tossed the lunar backpacks out, of course. They had their own pressure suits on inside. And how about this? An empty Hasselblad camera, those beautiful medium-format cameras that people use today. There's probably, of course, one still on the moon. Then they blasted off the moon, but they left some memorial artifacts to those that perished, like the Apollo 1 mission. But here's something even more interesting. When Aldrin got back into the uh, lunar module, by accident, and it was so bulky in there, he hit the ascent circuit breaker and actually broke the switch off. Now, that was the only way to get off the moon (laughs) because you had to flip the switch. So this is a true story, and it's been verified. He's said it many times. The day was saved, or the night, by him using a felt-tip pen and pushing that into that hole And the rest is history. They blasted off the surface of the moon because we all know what would have happened if they didn't. And then as they were going up on the ascent part of the, uh, you know, leaving the moon, Aldrin claimed to see the American flag sadly topple over from the exhaust blast. So wouldn't it be amazing to go back to this lunar site and collect some of those amazing artifacts? But without a doubt, six, seven hundred million people, maybe upwards of a billion people, Watch the moonwalk on a very crude black and white type television system. Just an amazing feat. And I never met Neil Armstrong. I had an opportunity to do it. I mean, I'm sure there's many listeners out there that have. 
But I've made it part of my Dr. Sky, you know, interviews as a journalist to interview so many of the moonwalkers over the past 20 years. And some of those stories, Frank, are just totally amazing. Um, Did you see the film First Man that came out a few years ago about the moonwalk? And, And if you did, what were your impressions of it? Well, I thought it was well done. And actually, it comes from Mr. Hansen's book that the Auburn professor, Neil Armstrong, was very protective of who he wanted to do his mm-hmm. biography. So Mr. Hansen did. But I thought it was actually very good. I mean, it's a little bit Hollywood poetic, as they say. But the saddest part, I think, in the whole movie is actually the story of how Neil Armstrong lost his little baby daughter. Mm. She died. And that was something that really affected him. But imagine all the pressure of having to handle everything that you'd have to do on the long flight to the moon to be the commander, and to make sure that all the things went as best as possible. And they were very fortunate that uh, they did have success on this particular mission, because even the slightest thing, Frank, could push this uh, into darkness, or as President Nixon had on his desk, in the event that they couldn't return, there was also another story, a live television broadcast, of the three three heroes that, of course, went to to, the two heroes on the surface of the moon, and uh, Michael Collins would have, of course, had to go back to Earth as a single writer in the Apollo command module. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Peter in the Bronx. Hello, Peter. Hey, how are you doing tonight? Great. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. I just wanted to talk about the budget that I've heard over the years that NASA, even Carl Sagan, was kind of critical of NASA and the way they spent their money, that they Mm -hmm. spent two-thirds of their budget on manned Space, uh, well, not space, unmanned space missions, but uh, space exploration was always done by unmanned uh, machines. And that people saw that NASA, and he even said, how how many times are you going to circle the Earth in a space shuttle and call it space exploration? And to to, to get to my point is, um, did a lot of people look at NASA and say, we are wasting money by giving money to this uh, organization? Well, a lot of people have. I mean, it's always been a fight. And if you look at it, I don't know the exact numbers. I should. But Bill Nelson, who, of course, heads NASA right now, would know the best answer. It's public knowledge, Peter, how much NASA gets. But it is a very tiny little budget that they really have. But let's go on to what you just mentioned. I mean, my time, I had an opportunity, like a few, to meet Carl Sagan. And I didn't ask him this question, but I was so, you know, it's just a college kid then. But the point is, you're right. He had also talked about and saying maybe we could better spend our money with the technology of robotic spacecraft and get more bang for the buck. So there is an argument there that some people could level, because look at the great technology that's come from a most amazing spacecraft series. Look at the Voyager spacecraft. They're just powering down like I think it's Voyager 1 or 2, or maybe both. They've been out there since 1977, and they also have paid their way many times over in exploration. So there might be a little faction that fights in between the NASA budget there or different sides of the fence, Some would say, let's do more manned exploration, while others might say, let's do more robotic exploration. And I think we're going to find out, technically, to to go to your point there, finally, that I think it's going to be more of the robotic exploration that's obviously going to take over because of the great leaps in technology. It can be done cheaper than than manned missions to anything. Thank you, Peter. 800-848-9222. Tony's in Florida. Hello there, Tony. Hi, Frank. Hi, Mr. Skye. Hi there, Tony. Hi, I have a question. I watched the first two moon landings in real time. Yes. And in the early 80s, maybe, maybe 1980, 
I read an article in the newspaper that said that they weren't going to do any more landings on the moon because when the rocket took off, it was so much force and the moon was so small, it caused it to literally shake. And they were afraid that it would either do something to the moon or knock it out of its orbit or whatever. Have you heard that? No, I haven't. I mean, but you're onto something. I just want to mention those first two launches. Apollo 11, as we know, went smoothly and launched into space. But the problem, there was no effect that the Apollo rockets had on the moon. No, that's not something that's accurate from what I know. But something happened with Apollo 12 that's quite interesting, and it may have canceled the entire program, other than the loss of the Apollo 1 astronauts that perished in the fire back in 1967. What happened, Tony, is that Apollo 12, when it launched, Al Bean, I actually asked him this question, who was in there with Pete Conrad. As they ascended, they, they literally launched through a thunderstorm. Go figure. So what happened is the Apollo Saturn V got hit by lightning, not once but twice. And imagine as you're driving your vehicle and you have all the lights and all the dashboard stuff on, it's so much more critical. Imagine what would happen if you're seeing in a spacecraft. Everything went dry and black. And if it wasn't for somebody on board there, they actually knew that they had a switch, a certain switch on in a certain way. It actually worked, and Apollo 12 got to the moon. But none of the Apollo rockets or anything like that caused, as far as I know, any changes in the orbit of the moon by any chance. They're so small compared to the size of the moon. We're going to continue with your calls and your questions for Dr. Sky in just a moment. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight talking with Dr. Sky. You can check out his blog at ktar.com. Straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. If you are just tuning in, my guest for the hour is Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Uh, He has a tremendous amount of knowledge and a great deal of passion when it comes to what's in the night sky, when it comes to space and the and astronomy. We've been answering as many of your questions as we as we can. We're going to continue to do that in just a moment. 800-848-9222. Steve, let me ask you, we've heard a great deal about this James Webb telescope. Apparently, it's going to be beaming some very impressive images back to Earth. It may have already begun. What's the latest with this James Webb telescope? Well, the good and the bad. The good is, I believe it's the 12th of July. We're going to see if the news conference hasn't happened already. The first solidified images from this amazing spacecraft. Remember, these 18 hexagonal gold-plated mirrors are going to peer back in time if we believe that the universe was created by an expansion 13.8 billion years ago. We're set to see some amazing images. But remember also, 
It sits at a position called one of the Lagrange points. They call it L2. Why is this important? It's about a million miles away from the Earth. So there's a little bit of a lag time when the signals come in, but that's the least of the concerns. But on the other side, the not-so-great side, is that the object was actually hit, the James Webb Telescope, one of its mirrors, was hit by a small, as they called it, micrometeor. And that's interesting because you can tell that there's no area that's a safe place in space for anything, especially when it's in the confines of the solar system. But on the positive, which is really the big news, wow, I'm ready. Everybody else, right, Frank, to get to see some images. Is this particular telescope, remember, it doesn't look in the white light that we see visual light. It primarily looks in infrared. So the sensitivity of those mirrors, it's, they're gold-plated because it has more of an absorption for infrared. But I'm excited, like everybody, don't you think? This is going to be amazing. As we peer back, maybe as early as, who knows, maybe 380,000 years after the expansion, when something really interesting happened, we call this like, as if you took an egg and you fried it in your pan in the, in, you know, in, in the, on the stove, and it would actually singe itself and sear itself. You know, you couldn't, you'd have to scrape the thing off. Something happened in the universe which heated up and changed the dynamics of the entire universe. So we're actually hopefully going to get to see some images, maybe even before stars and galaxies were formed or just about that time. So get set. I believe it's July 12th for uh, hopeful downloads and some images. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Only five days away, 800-848-9222. John is in Newburgh. Hello, John. Hi. Frank and uh, Dr. Sky, that was actually uh, the uh, James Webb Telescope was actually what I called in to uh, speak about. Um, yes, sir. I just wanted to know as far as uh, comparing it to what we had going on with the Hubble, mm -hmm. I know there's been so much money invested into the James Webb, and I know I yes. read a whole article that it took months even to open up the mirrors in order so it would have the, the proper right. – uh, would be able to receive the proper light to receive the images. So – I did hear you say that we're going to be able to look back to the beginning, uh, to possibly the beginning of the universe, to see what was going yes. on back then. Are mm -hmm. we also going to be able to see potentially anything else? I mean, what's the what's the major benefit of the James Webb over the Hubble? Are we going to be able to see more galaxies? Are we going to be able to see bigger pictures of galaxies? Is there? Oh yeah, John, you answered it. It's got much better light gathering or energy gathering capability because remember the Hubble Space Telescope, which by the way. We can't talk bad about it. It's done a great job. It's only a 94-inch mirror, and only is still pretty big. Let's go back 20 years and would go, wow, 94-inch mirror. But with the James Webb, you have a, a surface area collective of about 21 feet in diameter. So what's that going to do? Like in the basic telescopes that we talk about, if you have a mirrored telescope of 6 inches, that'll pick up a fairly decent amount of things in the night sky. But if you have a 16-inch mirror, or let's say a 24, you just go and expand the size of that mirror. It has more light or energy-gathering capability. So, oh, yeah, this is going to give us some amazing images that we've never seen before. And, uh, wow. John, stay tuned to your television and computer because I think you're going to be impressed. That's my pretty yeah, much prediction. Are we talking about more uh, potentially being able to identify more exoplanets and Earth-like planets? Oh, yeah. With the oh, yes. Planet? Absolutely. And that's what they're going to be studying. And, you know, maybe we'll find the first, quote, habitable exoplanet. But I'm interested. If I had so maybe a day, I don't know, everybody could pick what they would do with it. And by the way, the time on the James Webb Telescope was probably so, you know, booked up with, you have to get this committee to approve it. What would I do if I had it? I'd be happy to hear what other people would do. But I'd be looking at a star system called TRAPPIST-1, because it happens to have a miniature solar system of about eight so-called exoplanets.
Wow. And they're all at a certain distance that we call a habitable zone, or most of them. And that might be a place. Imagine that, firing that baby up on that and saying, wow, I found the third one. No, no pun intended, like the third planet from the sun, <laughs> the Earth. Imagine if we found something like that. But sadly, we have found exoplanets, right, John? But the problematic thing is most of them look like they're non-habitable. Even the one water planet that we found, it's in the wrong position to have life as we know it. But right, who are we to say what life should be? 800-848-9222. Don is in Long Beach. Hello, Don. Hi, Frank. Hi, Dr. Scott. Yes, excuse Good morning. my voice. I'm recovering from COVID. Well, um, God bless you. I, I hope you'll be okay. I, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I had called before, but I just want to reiterate, I just don't know why NASA hasn't put any emphasis on the two moons of um, Mars. They're the two closest moons beyond mm-hmm. our own. And they could they could do a sample return mission from either one and sure. use them as observatories. I, I I don't hear anything about you know exploring them. So just wanted to get your take on that. Well, Don, you're very much intuitive on this because I like my I like you know many people, myself included, would love to see some kind of sampling mission. But it all comes down to a budgetary thing. And I think Mars yeah. is the new the new Cold War race, like we had a space race. Who's going to get there first? Chinese have done amazing things with robots. Musk wants to yes. be the first, you know, people. But here's something interesting, not not to go back in history, but it's important. The two moons of Mars, called Deimos and Phobos, the legendary horses that drove Mars in his chariot, known as Panic and Fear, they were discovered in August of 1877 at the Naval Observatory, where the vice president lives. A very large telescope, a classic Clark refractor, Asaph Hall discovered them on a foggy night in the Washington area during the humidity of, su- of summer then. But what's interesting about them is that they're strange objects. Phobos looks like it was a captured moon. And some say, <laughs> and this goes way off the charts, who knows, maybe some sort of extraterrestrial craft of some kind. I don't necessarily believe it. But I can just tell you they better do it soon because one day in the astronomical future, these objects will actually come and cascade into the planet Mars and there'll be no more Deimos and Phobos, but they're fascinating. And finally, I love the history thing. Gulliver's Travels, that book, that particular novel, you know, the story of Gulliver's Travels. Jonathan Swift wrote this book about 100 or so years before the discovery of the satellites of Mars. But in the book, he actually, go figure, describes the exact size and dimension and distance that two hypothetical objects that orbit Mars are, Wow, maybe that guy had a time capsule, but isn't that a great coincidence? That's incredible. That, that, that's incredible. wild. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. That's wild. 800-848-9222. Hey, speaking of uh, things that we find in space, an interesting discovery. Uh, a discover- and I am somebody that probably drinks uh, a few too many Negronis uh, during my summer <laughs> weekends. But So I was particularly interested in the news that alcohol molecules – have been found in space. Uh, what does this mean? Could this bring down the price of bourbon at all? Well, it might bring the p- price of gasoline down because here we go, Frank. Your largest alcohol molecule has been found in space. Now, people are probably wondering, wait a minute, is that the stuff like that's in beer or wine? Well, it's the same kind of thing. But here's the, here's the scoop on this. As we had many people on the 4th of July consuming alcohol, I thought it an important story. The largest group of molecular alcohol has been detected near a star known as Sagittarius B2. What's that? It's a star close to the galactic center, but it's in the form of something called propanol and one that we probably recognize, isopropanol, 
Now, wait a minute, folks. Isn't that what's in hand sanitizer? Well, in a different molecular or atomic state. But it's amazing to know that these molecular clouds do exist in space. And guess what? Among other molecular clouds, the universe is filled with, yes, I'm going to say it twice, not just carbon dioxide, but carbon monoxide, carbon monoxide. So isn't this amazing? We have alcohol molecules floating around in space, but not the kind that you could sit at the table and go, pour me another. Mm. They're in a different state that would almost be uh, kind of bizarre if I could even figure out how to get them to a table. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's a, exciting, but also uh, a bummer. 800-848-9222. We're going to continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in just a bit. Uh, you want to check out his blog, you can do so at ktar.com, the Dr. Sky blog. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. We'll continue straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. of midnight talking with steve cates aka dr sky about all things space uh steve anything uh, that we should be looking forward uh, to seeing in the night sky soon whether we're going to go the telescope route the binoculars route or just the naked eye anything that excites you absolutely here we go if the listeners go out there all across the country where the show is heard and proudly so if you go out on this particular evening let's say thursday evening as you're listening Take a look at the moon, and just to the lower right, you'll see a star with the naked eye, even though the moon is now past first quarter. Why am I talking about this star, and what is it? It's a star called Spica. It's in the constellation Virgo. And as we celebrate or mark the 246th anniversary of America, just know that this particular star, strange as it is, the star is made up of two blue stars very close together that are egg-shaped because the gravity tugs on them. You can't see that because it's far away. Why am I saying this? The same time the Declaration of Independence was signed and the ink was still wet, there about, plus or minus, you know, a little variance here, the light that you see of the star Spica left when that declaration was signed and just got here now, 246 plus light years away, telling us once again that the sky is a gigantic time machine. For those of you with binoculars and telescopes, a small comet known as C-2017 K2, pan stars, a lot to say, is actually a binocular and telescope object, but I'd do it soon before the moonlight interferes. That comet, Frank, was one of the largest comets discovered so far away from the sun, maybe a nucleus of 10 miles in diameter. It may brighten up as we go through the month. And don't forget, as we move on to the 13th, another of the great supermoons that we have in our sky, this one appropriately named across the nation, as you have the particular season of summer, the full super thunder moon. That's great. And from the history file, real quick, we mark the 114th anniversary of one of the greatest explosions of an object or something that came from space over northern Siberia called the Tunguska event. Allegedly, a six or seven hundred foot in diameter asteroid. The old theory was that it exploded over northern Siberia 
and that it vaporized on impact, and it blew out trees the size of the state of Rhode Island. And some animals died and a few people died. But now the latest theory is the object may have come down in a shallow orbit, and the compression wave, the big shock wave, was that of about a 12, and I say it right, a 12-megaton type of a fireball, like a nuclear fireball, and that the object didn't hit the Earth at all because there's no crater, and it skipped out into space. But if it happened 30 minutes earlier, according to many in the reliable astronomy and celestial mechanics area, guess what? This object would have happened over London, England. Lucky for us, but sad for those in the path. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Joe in Queens, who has been patiently holding. Hello, Joe. Hey, Steve. How you doing? Uh, Good morning. Two, two things I want to bring up. One is yes, the rockets that came back, you know, some of them were put in Flushing Meadow Park as a museum. Did right. they look at those and see a before and after? That You know, and that would be my first question. And also, when you use the astronomical unit, uh, you know, which is supposedly the distance from the Earth to the sun, and now they say as of today, Pluto's 34.5 mm-hmm. uh, astronomical units from the sun. Is that used a lot? Is that kind of in use, that whole concept? Yeah. I'll start with the second part, uh, Joe. You're right. Astronomical unit, 92 dot 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 million miles away, that's used as a measuring benchmark. But what's interesting, and go off on a tangent here, but maybe not, the Earth right now is farthest from the sun. We're at a position called aphelion at 94.509 million miles away. So we use the AU unit to still measure what distance out into space. But going back to your first part about spacecraft, all the spacecraft that have come back, they've examined them, you know, tooth and nail. They've looked over every square inch of these things to see what happens. And the biggest damage that comes from any spacecraft coming back, most people know this, but I'll just add, add a little more spice to it, is that the great heat that is, you know, expended on these objects when they come through the atmosphere, it's easy maybe to get up to space, though that's difficult to some. It's even more challenging to come back because you will burn up. And even if you were an astronaut just floating out in space, you would eventually decay your own orbit and you'd meet a fiery end to your life. So they've studied these very closely, and the most important part of these is how do you protect the astronauts, cosmonauts, or tikonauts from the impending doom that would happen if you didn't have the proper heat shielding. So, so far, those technologies have proved to be pretty good. Let me squeeze in at least one more call here. Denise is on Long Island. Hello, Denise. Hi, Frank and Dr. Sky. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. I just wanted to give... um, recognition and a little memorabilia. Uh, my lifetime partner was a part of the landing on the moon. He was in top wow. management at the time. He awesome. lived the history. Um, yeah, it was pretty awesome at that time because sure. the technology didn't exist, but the exactly. perseverance and the belief that nothing could stop them from getting on the moon. Being right. at the Cape, Having tragic things happen when the astronauts had, you know, that horrific fire on the pad and there was a lockdown on the Cape. Horrible. I mean, he worked unbelievable hours. Everybody did. And I am so very proud of him. And I can remember going, even having the ability of being in the mock-up of the limb. And uh, there were memories at that time where I can remember Apollo 13, where Steve Kranz even said, 
And I'm going to allow Steve to respond, Denise, because we only have about 40 seconds here. Uh, Steve, uh, anything you want to add in closing? Well, Denise, blessings on your partner as we talk about these great space heroes. Thank you for adding that to this conversation. Frank, it's a privilege and honor to be back on the other side of midnight with you as we conclude this Dr. Sky adventure. But thank you. And if people want to get in touch with you, if they have questions via email, how can they reach you? Use this email, drskyshow at gmail.com. That's D-R-S-K-Y show at gmail.com. I'd be happy to respond. All right. Coming up in just a moment, we're going to talk about grandparents and dinner, two of my favorite things. Until then, keep asking questions. <laughs> 